You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, Principal of ITK. How are you, David? Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners, wherever they may be, uh, uh, well also and it's a hello to our special guest this evening. Well, not quite yet. Um, as you may remember, um, this podcast hasn't gone quite as we planned. We did a fantastic recording, had a fantastic discussion with Oliver Yates, um, formerly the head of the CFC, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and more recently the candidate for Kuyong in the federal election. And um, that kind of disappeared when my laptop crashed. So we're doing it again. And um, I've managed, because we've both been uh, flung to the far corners of the state, I think you're out west and um, I've been running around a bit up north, I've done a separate interview with Oliver, which we'll hear later, so um, it's a bit of a shame, it was a cracking interview uh, discussion we had last night, but um, we'll go ahead anyway. Look, a couple of things that we brought up last night was really about the state of play post the election. And I guess the question on anyone's lips is what happens now? We've got Angus Taylor back as Energy Minister and Minister for Emissions Reductions, which doesn't seem to be happening. But um, no real policy in place. But um, as you've noted, there's still things happening. Um, More wind farms and solar farms being um, announced. That's right, Giles. Uh, We've had 500 megawatts confirmed as going ahead uh, since the election. That includes the Kaltana solar farm, which is not absolutely confirmed, but you can say that the granting of the EPC contract is just about uh, confirming it. That's 280 megawatts of solar in South Australia. And we've also had the Collector Wind Farm, 220 megawatts of wind, uh, uh, announced in New South Wales going ahead uh, with the thanks to the help of the CEFC. Uh, which which has done done a great job uh, both when Oliver was there and and now under its Ian Leonard, and uh, I think also you had some news about the Kiamal uh, solar farm today, didn't you as well, Giles? Yeah, no, look, that was interesting too. That's a big solar farm in Victoria. In fact, it's going to be the biggest solar farm in Victoria. Um, it was p- located in what's become known, what we've dubbed as the rhombus of regret in Victoria. It's basically a constrained part of the grid, and the network actually looks like a rhombus. And it's just an area which happens to have really good solar and wind resources. And all these guys have piled in, and the network operator has just said, hang on, <laughs> slow down, guys. Um, we're not too sure how much of this you can do without being constrained or severely connected. So the interesting thing about Kiamal is that they signed all these PPAs with the likes of Mars Australia and Flow Power and a bunch of water corporations, Victoria. It's 256 megawatts. And we're then told that they had to have a synchronous condenser, which is kind of an old-style machine, which just basically turns without burning stuff and um, supposedly keeps the grid in good order, gives that synchronous capacity. So what happened was that the construction of the solar farm actually started, and it only got its financing in place afterwards, which is very unusual. And it's pretty interesting to note that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation did come in and assist, but it came in as an equity partner in the solar farm, which I believe, David, is quite unusual. 
and it might have been to sort of deal with this extra issue about synchronous generation. And it also got a bunch of lending um, loans from the likes of ANZ, ING, and another bank whose name I forget. Apologies to them. But um, but interesting. And um, the, another interesting thing about this solar farm is that if it does go well, it will likely almost double its capacity to very nearly 500 megawatts and is talking about a very, very big battery um, of up to 1,000 megawatt hours, which would be almost 10 times the size of the Tesla big battery. But I think there's a long way to go between announcing such ideas and actually getting the finance and the market signals in place for such a thing. But still, it does suggest that things are moving forward, and I'm not too sure whether it's the momentum from policies past still coming through, a breakthrough about the cost of wind and solar suggesting that things are going to happen anyway, um, and what the long term holds. Yeah, that's right, Giles. And look, before we go any further, um, you know, um, uh, you'll have to tell me. It sounds like something out of my one of my kids' books, but what is a rhombus? <laughs> rhombus. It's a very funny sort. It's a sort of sort of rectangle that you might draw if you're drunk. I think. <laughs> So, sort of... Well, that's all right. I'm staying. I'm staying in the pub, so I'll have a go at a couple later on. I'm going to ask well, anyone if they know what this is, and if anyone tells me it's a rhombus, I'm, I'm going to buy them a drink. Absolutely, um, it's, it's the rhombus of regret. Charles... You buy them too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. If I do, if they do recognise it, and I do have to buy them a drink, and it's an expensive one, it will be, really will be the regrettable rhombus. But anyway. Um, look, the point, as we said, is that there is projects still going ahead, uh, and that's because, you know, solar and wind uh, are relatively cost-effective. We still have to, um, as Paul McArdle, who's just released his fantastic uh, generator report card, uh, will tell you as quick as a flash, it's revenue uh, that matters as much as cost. Um, and, you know, wind and solar still have to have a dispatchable component added in. But nevertheless, the, they can do the great bulk of the energy that's required in the NEM. As everyone in, uh, from AEMO and the ISP and uh, uh, to the actual people buying this stuff recognises, uh, we've also got uh, one end of the projects are getting bigger, the wind and the solar. Um, you know, we just talked about 500 megawatts and another 250 that's, that's sort of going ahead. That's a lot of lot of energy. But on the other hand, we've got uh, the behind the meter stuff uh, powering ahead also at a fantastic rate of knots, probably at least 50% higher than people would have guessed uh, a couple of years ago and a whole lot of five megawatt projects. Now, before we go any further, I want to mention one other thing, um, uh, and that is CWP. Uh, they have got their little, um, uh, their, their wind farm in northern New South Wales, the Sapphire Wind the Farm. The Sapphire Wind, and yes, exactly. Uh, and they've gone out of their way to provide an opportunity for investors, big and small, to get into that without having to buy listed shares to buy a quasi-debt instrument effectively, which offers a 6% yield for nine years. And I believe that's uh, open open right now. Uh, that, that wind farm is fully contracted over that period of time. So I won't say any more. You'd better read the uh, disclosure document. But I think people are interested in, <laughs> uh, interested in that sort of thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And then also this week, uh, Giles, we gone. No, no, no. I was just going to say, um, yes, it, it, that Sapphire Wind Farm is actually quite interesting. Um, it has been quite difficult to unlock that community ownership component of wind farms. Um, it's not that easy when you're sort of setting up these um, businesses and things, so it's um, all credit to them. Interestingly, that Sapphire Wind Farm, um, which is in right in the middle of Barnaby Joyce's electorate, um, it's 170 megawatts. 100 megawatts of it is contracted to the ACT government, part of its 100% renewables goal by 2020, which will meet quite easily. In fact, by the 
this October. And the, another part of that wind farm is actually contracted to the Sydney Opera House, which was revealed this week. And um, the Sydney Opera House um, obviously can't put panels on its sails. So it's contracted a wind farm and a solar farm, the Bowman Solar Farm being built in Wagga Wagga, the electorate of the current leaders of the National Party. So um, all credit to them too for, um, for taking that initiative and, um, and also saving money as well and getting certainty about their future electricity prices. That's right. Now, also in the news this week, we've uh, seen the AEMC uh, finally getting its work program together and a number of developments there. Uh, I note that they've now got a uh, formal director of uh, strategy and economics. Um, uh, so uh, I expect the AEMC to become uh, progressive would definitely be the wrong word, uh, but to be thinking hard <laughs> about it, uh, uh, hard about progressively better. <laughs> In, 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 incrementally more inclined uh, to, to um, uh, how can I put it, smoothing the transition, which everyone uh, other than a few people now see and is pretty much absolutely inevitable. And look, we're going to get on and mention what the AMC has been doing. You, you can run through that, Giles. But I want to point out that, uh, you know, amongst all this argument about whether renewables are cheap or expensive, you have to remember that fossil fuels are getting uh, extremely expensive as well. The coal price uh, is high and the gas price is high and there's not much water in the dams. Uh, uh, so, you know, Hydro Tassie and uh, Hydro and Victoria have been well down on their output on last year. Uh, to get a new coal mine going requires probably a coal price of over $100 a tonne. I mean, this makes thermal generation an expensive proposition. But uh, what's the AMC been yeah, up no. to, Giles? Well, it actually goes to what you were just mentioning about Paul McArdle from Global Rome, who's done that very um, detailed generated report card. And he, as you say, it's about revenue. And that means that you almost need to have new markets created for some of these new facilities coming in. And so there's a couple of things happening there with this um, AMC one of the big changes that they've announced um, last week was the ability to recognise um, or to allow networks basically to cut off the wires, the long extended wires, the poles and wires that go out into the far distance and up gullies and up sort of valleys and things like that to deliver electricity for um, remote and uh, regional um, consumers. Some of these are incredibly expensive. I think Essential Energy in New South Wales said it spent up to $25,000 a year per customer um, just to clear vegetation in some areas. So the obvious and, idea... And we know the community... Well, sorry, we know the community service obligation in North Queensland runs to somewhere between four and $600 million a year, you know, which is a, a, a pretty substantial cost for that everyone else in Queensland has to pay. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. It's a cross-subsidy that, that, that dwarfs anything else that's um, happening. So um, so they've known for quite a while that the cheapest thing to do is actually cut the wires and pr pr provide these consumers with um, solar and battery and maybe a bit of backup. They haven't been able to do that because of the old ancient regulations. So now they're finding a way forward that does allow them to do that. I think there's sort of thousands and thousands and thousands of customers that they've already identified, particularly in Western Australia and Queensland and probably also in New South Wales and South Australia. So we're going to see a lot of that and I'd imagine there's actually going to be a lot more. And one of the interesting things recognised by the AMC is that this would not just be provide cleaner and um, smarter and cheaper electricity it'd also be more reliable because and save money for everyone because we're all paying that cross subsidy so that was good and then also today they've just come out and said that they're going to be re-looking at these marginal loss factors which we've talked about quite a lot on the um 
on this podcast, um, raising some of the concerns, particularly from the investors, the variation, the lack of visibility. So they're really looking at reframing that, um, how these are done, just to give some people some some access. And one of the key things there, uh, and it goes to, it, it actually just goes to the ancient nature of this um, of, of this rules regime. It's just allowing the networks to talk about some of the other projects that are happening um, in their area. For instance, they might have some bloke coming in and say, I want to build a solar farm here. And the guy says, well, yeah, that should be okay. Yeah, no, okay, um, no real problem with the grid there. Somebody comes in, um, wants to build one right next door, and then the third person comes in and wants to build one next door to that. He can't actually tell them, hey, guys, there's three of you in the same place. That's not going to fit. He can only talk to one of them as though they're the only customer. And it's just been a ridiculous um, situation. So having some more visibility, people can understand what else is happening on the network and some certainty about the future revenue. So I think that's a step forward. Look, Giles, it's a a principle of markets and you can consider access to transmission to be a market of sorts. Uh, It's an absolute principle of a good, well-functioning market that there is full disclosure. You know, you've only got to look at any properly functioning market which has a high degree of um, liquidity and you'll find there's lots of information and lots of disclosure about it. And uh, I think the uh, AEMO have been on for ages about the fact that people who are proposing to connect uh, can't be um, hoping to keep that all a big secret from everyone else. And so let's hope yep. that progresses. Um, uh, in regard to the um, uh, microgrids and sort of semi-connected grids, I want to point out that this provides a lot of opportunity for uh, jobs uh, of the highly skilled variety. You know, they're not jobs you're going to hear the CFMEU talking about who mainly still want to be out there using their muscle digging coal mines or, or whatever it is the CFMEU does when it's not disrupting something. Um, encouraging the Queensland government probably to to run an appeal against the uh, solar uh, 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 ridiculous rule that they put in and lost. Uh, but, you know, these highly skilled jobs and this distributed energy is the way to build the smarter Australia uh, that uh, we all are going to need going forward. Absolutely. And so it's, um, it's good that we're actually starting at the edge of grid maybe and then coming inwards. Um, look, I think it's time, David, that we actually have listened to this interview from Oliver Yates. Um, we did have a great discussion, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast um, last night. We've had to redo it, but I got hold of him again this afternoon and really appreciate it. Um, so here's Oliver Yates, the former head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and more recently the candidate for Kuyong in Victoria. Oliver Yates, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. G'day, Giles. How are things? Very good, thank you. Um, we've actually, this is, I think this must be our third go at this uh, conversation, but that's okay. We'll finally get through to the listeners. Technology. <laughs> we all sorts technology. of troubles. Damn that technology. We should stick to the old, shouldn't we? Um, yes, yeah, send it by fax. Um, Oliver, I, there's a lot to talk about with your experiences in the election result and the um, energy debate going forward, but I just wanted to touch first on what you expect to happen now. Um, we've had the unexpected re-election of the coalition government. We have we 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 are um, still have Angus Taylor as energy minister, and um, also now energy for emissions reductions, which is something that's um, clearly not happening at the moment, as the new data tells us. But we still have a fair bit of momentum in the wind and solar industry, and um, and, and and I guess some storage. Um, projects too. What do you expect to happen over the short and medium term while we're stuck with a government with no declared policy, um, yet I guess there's still a policy that needs to be met, although I'm thinking about the renewable energy target here probably already has been met, but what's your assessment of, of, of where we're going to go over the short medium term? 
Well, Giles, I think it's unpredictable. I think, uh, you know, we've got the, uh, the big stick still floating around. We've got a climate solutions package, which, um, you know, is not a solution at all. And we've got the, you know, again, under this big stick, the threat of divestment still floating around. So, unfortunately, I think we um, have started uh, with this new government pretty much where um, uh, we were pleased to leave them, not believing they were going to be uh, back in again. Um, of not really having any clear uh, view as to what an energy policy uh, is likely to be. I mean, they seem to be wanting to be more interventional um, and they seem to be wanting to focus on individual projects. So we still have that reverse auction arrangement that they've been talking about. Um, but really none of that provides a solution to the uh, energy trilemma or the energy dilemma uh, that we face. So I guess it'll be a bit of a wait and, a wait and see. Yeah, um, there's obviously been a few. There's a few projects coming along. Um, in our um, previously sort of failed discussion, well, the discussion didn't fail, but the recording of it did. Um, David Leach um, pointed out about 500 megawatts just announced in the last two weeks. Overnight, there was another 260 megawatt solar farm in Victoria, which landed its financing um, you know, unusually after it started construction, but that has something to do with the um, change in requirements that it was faced to do. So there's still some investment coming down the line, but I think you made the point then that you will get this investment, but it'll be haphazard and um, kind of all over the shop and not very well coordinated, and presumably that's going to be less efficient. Yeah, I think that's the big risk, uh, Giles. I don't think the investment is going to stop. Um, at the moment, we're in a position where we have you know, record world low interest rates and certainly very low interest rates in Australia. And when investors are looking at these projects, I guess they're looking um, for a, the long-term prognosis of their investment as well as how they can obtain um, any form of um, equity yield or return in a current, uh, in a current low, uh, low return environment. And if you look at current wholesale energy prices and the prognosis of where energy prices are going to go or, or stay over the long term, investors are probably looking forward at the market thinking that the market is going to continue to support a reasonable energy price because um, the coal-fired power stations are simply going to fall out of the market sooner or later and renewables are vastly cheaper. They, they, the problem for everybody in this scenario is the the way that they fall out of the market um, will be designed, not surprisingly, by those people who own those assets to uh, retain higher prices for longer, which probably means that those people who've got the guts to continue to invest in renewables will continue to do it and continue to build projects, so effectively to break and accelerate the transition uh, without, without uh, the government really being in control at all. And yet we would prefer to have a government in control. We prefer to have a policy which actually sort of looks to the future and, and, and where we could go and how we can actually get there efficiently. Well, you do need that because the problem that you've got is you've got um, um, a random uh, determination in relation to timing of, of closure closures. Um, and that's very disrupt disruptive to the market. Large investment decisions need to be made and if you want to reduce the cost of capital in relation to those investment decisions, you need to you need to try and eliminate um, unnecessary uncertainty and, and certainly having a disorderly um, transition in the electricity sector will lead to higher um, rates of return or risk multiples required by investors, which ultimately mean unnecessarily higher um, electricity prices just because mm. the government is not putting in place an orderly transition which is coming anyway. 
Without a government that actually places a, um, that has a vision for the future, um, is the best that we can hope then that they simply stand out of the way? Um, as I think someone famously asked the Americans to do at one of the one of those climate conferences, if you don't if, if you don't want to join us, then, then then stand out of the way. Is that what we can hope for? And is there any sign that they will actually allow the industry to do that? Well, look, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, that's certainly not the best answer when you're trying to pull out very large assets like um, like existing coal fired generators. They can have a significant market impact when they fall out of the market. And I know we've got this kind of three year rule. Um, and maybe that will be the only salvation in relation to this if, if these things are required to operate with three years' notice. Um, but it's a terribly disorderly way to go and, uh, and undertake this transition. But it may be, in essence, what, uh, what happens now. But the government, I mean, the government could be kicking and screaming in relation to watching this happen and claiming that the transition is disorderly, claiming that it's driving up energy prices. And, and in essence, it will drive up energy prices because from a pure macroeconomic point of view, is what you'll do is if you own coal-fired generators, you'll be turning them off faster um, so that your existing fleet or your remaining fleet has elevated prices for longer um, when you know renewables are going to come down and eat your lunch anyway. So the cost of renewables continues to decline. Some of the assets that are coming on the system uh, even more um, uh, what you consider kind of reliable in relation to some of the larger projects which are going to be built inland Australia which capture diurnal wind patterns to match with solar. Um, so the competition of the renewable giant is, um, is just going to continue to eat their lunch and so therefore in a rational market I think they will be turning off faster in a disorderly way to try and maximise prices and high prices for longer. So it's, it's the worst of all it's the worst of all worlds uh, that we're facing here, but I don't think renewables are going to stop. We have these um, conversations, you know, on this sort of podcast, and we've just been discussing the details of policy, and we sort of talk about these, um, um, you know, th these these trends. But in your experience, I mean, you are the former head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and that's why we're talking to you about this particular subject. But you're more recently a candidate for the seat of Kuyong, the traditional liberal seat, probably the most safe, the safest seat for a long time in, in the whole country. Um, you're a candidate there, but that's not the message you heard when you were talking to people at the booth. Can, can you just tell us what you heard and why you think that's the case? And, and, and I guess the next conversation, part of the conversation will be what we do about it. But let's start off with what you heard um, on the street. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot of people who are pro-renewables, um, clearly. However, um, there's a hell of a lot of people who have information that's been provided to them which they believe is factual, which is, which is really seriously outdated. And, you know, the, the key issue and the factor which is outdated is actually um, how competitive renewables are. They still generally do not believe that renewables are as cheap as other forms of generation, whether it be coal or whether it be nuclear. And they don't believe that there is any path to... Uh, reaching a scenario where renewables and storage and batteries uh, can produce power as cheaply and, and, and as reliably as um, traditional, you know, coal-fired generation and potentially nuclear. So there's a real um, lag here um, from the population in understanding 
the economic benefits and, and, and the low cost of energy that will be provided by renewables. And, and I can kind of understand why, Giles, because I think we've all been, you know, even in the industry, I think we've been surprised at the rapid cost decline. And that's for us in the industry. But for those people who are outside of the industry, they're completely blind to the very significant cost reductions that have occurred in the industry and how you know, every time you think, I mean, you, you'd probably agree with this, Giles, every time you think that the costs are going to stop declining, they tend to do it again. I mean, renewables tend to get cheaper yet again each time you think that they've reached a bottom. Look, absolutely. And, um, and, and, I, and I've come across that too in the street. I mean, I've, um, I, I often wear my solar as the future T-shirt and um, I walk down the street and um, someone's sort of barefooted, sort of alternative looking. I live up in Byron Bay and they look at me and look at my T-shirt and go, no, 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 mate, it's got to be cold. We've got to, got to have cold to keep the lights on. So this information, you say they're being blinded um, or they're blind to it. I mean, are they being blinded um, by any particular part of society? I mean, I guess when you're talking about um, people not accepting the fact that the renewables are falling in, in, in cost and can provide sort of reliable energy, I was just thinking, well, maybe you're talking about some of the uh, most of the government and the coalition MPs. But um, what you're finding is that people coming up to you in the booth and saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, and they're saying the same thing as a result of the access to the information that they have. I mean, you've got to look at where do people get their knowledge from? They get their knowledge from either media advertising or otherwise the, the news that they hear on, on, you know, the radio, general political conversation. And uh, under, I think under all of those three things, the message that's not getting through is the positive message of renewables. Um, all you hear is, you know, blackouts in South Australia is you know, unreliable power and we need fair income power and then you have the Minerals Council advertising for, you know, if they're doing it in Japan, why can't we have cheap, clean coal in Australia and if Japan's doing it, Australia should be doing it and, and then you have, you know, like, oh, look at France, it's so clean, it's so wonderful as a result of being of nuclear and there's another whole social media campaign spruiking nuclear but there is nothing, there's no coordinated explanation to the population in relation to how significant the energy transition has been from the renewable side. And they're failing. I mean, and I, and I think if someone did a, an ad spend or a, an effort spend in relation to the renewable energy industry, because it is predominantly made up by individual developers who make money and then finish, uh, um, they're not spending in any way the same amount of educating and or securing the views of public opinion. And that's very much reflected on the street. So when people walk up to me with shopping mm. trolleys, they have no idea they have any information other than the information that they hear from media advertising or, or on the news. And, uh, you know, generally we all rail against it, but then and we're railing against it because we know it's not right. But that's the information that they get and that's the information that they believe, which is fair enough. Mm. And and um, were you were you to what extent were you surprised by this and um, and and how do they respond when you when you try to tell tell them something different? Um, look, it, it, you're surprised in the sense that um, that these are all very sensible people who genuinely um, uh, do not understand the information. When you try and provide them with the information, they're skeptical because they think that you're you know lobbying one way, um, but they're very open to having the information. But clearly. The knowledge that they have, again, is imparted by the information that's around them and uh, you're fighting against um, a long entrenched view which has been, you know, which is regurgitated all the time. It's, it's regurgitated, the same, same issues are regurgitated time after time after time. And we've seen it, again, we've complained about it, but media hasn't changed their position and the stories continue to rattle through about unreliability and about costs and how we have to have trillions of dollars of subsidies for renewables. 
that's that's the view that people have on the street. Yeah, yeah. What to do about it then? You talked about advertising, you talked about the um, clean energy industry, maybe sort of, you know, rallying together and just focusing a little bit more on this, on, on actually getting the message out, because I guess people are bombarded by those vested and incumbent interests who um, who are not shy of um, spending some coin, um, particularly look at Clive Palmer in the last election, $60 million, um, and he'll probably get to um, have his coal province opened up because of it. Well, I think people need to create an alternative narrative here and, um, and the industry should be looking and, and trying to do a little bit of a study to say how much money is going on the, the other side of the table and work out how they should fund some form of activity. What I was surprised during my election campaign is that through the use of social media, how relatively cheap it is to get a message out. It isn't that expensive if you're... Particularly after an election when there isn't so much competition for media time, your ability to get a message out through social media these days is actually very is actually very cheap, um, and I think uh, the renewable energy industry should be thinking about getting together and putting together a pool of money and undertaking um, an education slash advertising campaign um, that targets uh, targets uh, counteracting this um, false knowledge which which you know is in the market. And it seems to me there's a good um, opportunity to actually sort of um, promote the positives. Um, we heard very little in the latest campaign, despite the fact that Labor came in with quite a reasonable policy suite, and one which I think most people admired, and some people want to go even further, but as far as the targets go, they probably would have gone further anyway, just by the force of momentum. But it, there, there wasn't enough emphasis on the benefits, and I'm just thinking in terms of costs of um, investment. Um, we're starting to hear more about the hydrogen economy now and the potential of that to create a renewable superpower. Um, is, is that the key, to sort of focus on those positives? Look, I think you can focus on the positives, but I think you need to actually get over the... Um the, the negatives that are that are there. I mean, that, that, that these false beliefs are entrenched and they should be addressed. But showing to people how um, an economy can operate on renewables um, is is really important, and how future jobs will be created through uh, renewables, and how the phase out of fossil fuels, for example, would save us say forty billion dollars a year in in exports that we spend on on imported petroleum. There are a lot of good messages that um, that could be put out. Um, but again, who's going to you know who's going to fund that message now? The Labor Party could have put that message out there, but I think to be honest, in their view, is I think they made a failed assumption that the dis dis um, disorganisation and the disruption within the Liberal Party was going to be enough to carry them over the election line, and they didn't need to, and um, that proved to be um, that proved to be false. Yes, indeed. Now, um, what about your own um, result? Um, you got slightly under 10%, which uh, may not sound a lot, but I guess um, the opposition vote was sort of split between yourself and Julian Burnside from the Greens. Um, I guess you did at least force Josh Frydenberg, the sitting member, the former um, um, Environment um, and Energy Minister and the current Treasurer, to um, preferences. Yeah, and forcing the preferences is an important signal. It shows that over fifty percent of this electorate here did not vote um, for the, you know, vote liberal, and um, and part, and a significant result of that was a position in relation to climate change. So, if you put myself and the Greens together, uh, we would have had about thirty-four, you know, thirty-four, thirty-five percent uh, of uh, actually thirty-five, about thirty, probably more about thirty-five percent of the vote between ourselves, and and obviously we both had heavy green credentials. So that means 35% of this electorate was voting on people who wanted heavy green action. 
Uh, um, now, obviously, there was 49% uh, of the electorate was uh, was in the Liberal camp, but that's quite significant to have that type of that type of result. Um, it, it shows that the electorate is very sympathetic to um, uh, green uh, issues, and it wants action on climate change. And it was good to see that uh, that Josh Frydenberg was forced to uh, preferences, and you know, gets in on the back of um, Clive Palmer's UAP. You know, what a great uh, what a great way to secure your seat. Nothing like having the UAP uh, put you in. <laughs> you spent um, a lot of your time in uh, in, in business. Um, you've obviously negotiated and seen the business tactics and where they compete with each other. What was your assessment of the uh, the business of politics and political tactics during the election campaign? Well, Giles, it surprised me. I um, I was a bit um, childish, I guess, in relation to my understanding of politics. Um, the uh, the dirt that they threw out against um, the, the liberals threw out against me was um, was obviously quite um, quite heavy uh, and um, you know crossed into misleading and deceptive and almost into and potentially into def defamation. So I did send them a letter saying, guys, um, you know, uh, I think what you're doing is completely misleading and deceptive, and you know you could end up with a defamation charge with this. And um, they came back and they said, dear old boy Oliver, you uh, you silly little goose. Uh, don't you realise that we're fully entitled to be misleading and deceptive during election campaigns? So um, any claim in relation to being misleading and deceptive is a joke. Um, we assert our rights to be misleading and deceptive and we're entitled to be misleading and deceptive during election campaigns with any of the material that we put out in relation to convincing voters of whom to vote for. Um, and I was a bit stunned by that, Giles. You know, in, in every industry from a business perspective, so I. <laughs> I think you you learn from day one that... Um, that it's a, a heinous crime or could get you into a lot of trouble being misleading and deceptive. Um, but the political parties assert their right during an election campaign to actually be misleading and deceptive as a legal right and a you know profound tactic which they're entitled to be. And that seriously surprised me. And I think it surprised many voters when I've explained it to them that, um, that the parties assert their right to be misleading and deceptive. It's it's kind of really crazy that that's what they want it to be. So that was one issue. And then the only place you can't be misleading and deceptive is in relation to how you cast or you tell someone to cast their vote. So in other words, if you were to say to them, oh, by the way, just put a one in my box, then uh, don't worry about filling out the rest of the form, Bob's your uncle, that could get you into trouble. Um, but um, it appeared that they even managed to cross that line this election because... Um, the, uh, the Liberal Party put up a sign um, identical in colours to the AEC without any Liberal Party logo on it with a, um, an authorisation that you'd have to be lying on your belly on the ground underneath the sign to be able to read, um, which stated in Mandarin uh, explaining what the correct way to vote was. And, of course, the correct way to vote was to put one in the Liberal box. <laughs> um, so so that, 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 that did actually probably cross the line, um, even though the AEC didn't indicate that it... <laughs> across the line so we're probably going to um, well we are going to um, sue in, in relation to the um, the court of disputed returns in relation to that sign because it's a fundamental uh, position that um, we protect our electoral system if the if the AEC which is the you know, electoral commission is unprepared to actually ensure that our we conduct elections which are true and fair and uh, then I don't know who's supposed to but um, you know, one of the things that I was standing on here and one of the reasons why I believe the government has failed to address climate change was because of a lack of integrity. 
And to be honest, this campaign of being misleading and deceptive and asserting a right of being misleading and deceptive is a horrendous lack of integrity and using political signs dressed up in the colours of the AEC to encourage people to vote one way or the other in a foreign language, which confuses people, uh, is another sign of lack of integrity. So uh, I think this is, a, this is a case that I'm taking on and there is a... Um, a website for any of your donors who um, who uh, want to join the litigation, but we have what's called an Integrity Litigation Fighting Fund, and we are going to fight uh, in relation to the outcome and the activities in relation to this election. And uh, the main action will relate to um, the Mandarin sign at this stage. Well, we look forward to um, seeing the progress on that. Now, apart from the court action, what what next? What is next for um for Oliver Yates? Well, Giles, I'm always after a good job. I might become, you know, your co-host or something like that. You know, but we might have to learn <laughs> how to use might have to learn how to use these electronic recording systems so that we can do uh, do these things better. Um, look, I'm I've I'm still retain all of my uh, traditional uh, in, uh, interests, Giles. I love I love new businesses. Um, I've always been a, a business builder, um, and uh, and I enjoy doing that. This is the this is the area of the economy that's going to see the greatest transition. It's the area of the economy that has the greatest opportunities for entrepreneurs at the moment. Um, you know, it's a fantastic area to operate in. So, um, and I find people in, in this industry space really positive, really dynamic and a delight to deal with. So um, I'm going to continue operating on the good side of the table and uh, I look forward to working with, um, you know, everybody who listens to your podcasts and reads your magazines. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much, Oliver, for joining um, Energy Insiders and uh, good luck with the litigation and uh, good luck um, for the future. No worries. Thanks, Charles. Bye-bye. And that was Oliver Yates, the uh, more the recent candidate for Kuyong in Victoria and formerly the uh, head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. David, um, pretty important message there about we have these wonderful conversations on this podcast and other podcasts. We talk about the detail of policy, but clearly um, the other side is winning the public debate about it because the message about renewables and um, the transition and the benefits of it are just not getting through. Well, I don't agree with that, Charles. I think the message is getting through. And I think we've, uh, you know, uh, wind and solar are now up to 15% right this very second or 14.5% in winter of, uh, of electricity. And that's a lot more than people would have imagined a few years ago. Uh, and by the way, there's still another eight uh, gigawatts. Uh, so another uh, uh, pretty much 10, 10 terawatt hours, another 5% of market share to come on. So there'll be 20, 25%. Um, uh, that's locked in. So I think the message is getting through. That said, I think we can do a lot more on the marketing side of things. Uh, we have to think about how to frame these arguments properly. I think the industry, the CEFC, the Smart Energy Council, uh, they're the industry bodies. They need to think harder about marketing, not just writing position papers after elections. Uh, they need to think how to get their message for their members across in, in, in in a full-time way, whether that's uh, social media marketing or actually having television and radio advertisements, uh, you know, um, that, that have been framed by advertising people who now know how to pull the right emotional taglines and frame the questions properly. That's one thing. Another thing, Giles, uh, I think, you know, Oliver's uh, got quite a big profile now. He got his eight, eight and a half thousand votes down there in Kuyong. Uh, took eight and a half percent. Uh, be fair. <laughs> no, well, I think oh, no, it was actually was eight and a half thousand. Yes. I think. Okay, actually, fair enough. Uh, Go ahead. But, but but so he did pretty well, and he's he's got a big profile now. I mean, the industry needs people like Oliver. Uh, you know, arguably in Parliament somewhere, 
advocating long and hard with all of his expertise. But the question is whether people like him do it better as independents. And this is not a podcast about politics or, or, or whether as, you know, p- p- part of a party uh, uh, where I think, you know, there's always been the strength in numbers. But that's 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 for Oliver to work out. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll be watching his next move with interest. Well, David, I think we better wrap it up there because um, I think we've taken our time allotment of um, all our listeners. And um, I do want to thank our um, sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and What Watchers. We do thank you for your continued and ongoing support for this podcast. And um, we'll be back again next week. Um, David, we're off to um, Sydney for the Smart Energy Conference. And after that, we're over to Perth for the Minds and Energy Conference, where we'll actually be doing a uh, quote unquote live podcast well we're basically going to be doing it in a, in a, in a room full of people with some invited guests and um, we'll be putting that recording up on our website afterwards look, look, as, as our podcast Charles, so. I'll, I'll, I'll be taking my boots my hard hat hard hat and my high uh, vis vest and uh, I'll be walking to the podcast <laughs> saying uh, you know renewables and mining they go together well we'll find out what they it. say thank you very much <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, listeners, for listening. And uh, that's all for now. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by SolarAy Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use.